This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Insurrectionist speaker, Kevin McCarthy. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslin. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup is Politicology fan favorite Lene Erickson. Lene is the senior vice president for the social policy and politics program at Third Way. Lene also served on President Obama's advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. Lene, as always, so great to see you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And making his Politicology debut, Mike Pesca. Mike is the host of The Gist, which is the longest-running daily news podcast and co-host and creator of Not Even Mad, a weekly podcast dedicated to joyful disagreement across the political spectrum. Previously, he was a longtime sports reporter for NPR. Mike, welcome to Politicology. Happy New Year. Thanks. I'm aspiring to be, if not a fan favorite, then a fan tolerant. (laughs) (laughs) On this week's roundup, after 15 ballots... We now have a Speaker of the House. We will discuss what Kevin McCarthy gave up to get the gavel and the impact the Freedom Caucus can have on this Congress. Then we'll discuss the news that President Biden's lawyers discovered classified documents from his time as vice president in his former office and how this discovery could impact our politics. Next up, we will break down the riots in Brazil's capital and the connection between what's going on there and what happened here in Washington on January 6th. Finally, For our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss President Biden's recent pivot to the center or reported planned recent pivot to the center as he prepares for a likely 2024 re-election campaign. If you want to pull up a chair and join us for that, a Politicology Plus subscription gets you the private and ad-free version of the show with additional episodes that aren't on the public version. There are two ways you can get it. Option one is to sign up directly with us at politicology.com slash plus, and that gets you a link you can use to listen in any major podcast player. Option two, if you only listen in the Apple Podcast app, you can navigate to the Politicology Show and tap the button there that says Try Free. We'll dig in right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, so in the early hours of Saturday morning, in the 15th round of voting, California Republican Kevin McCarthy was able to secure a majority of the votes for Speaker of the House. Lene, you finally get to say it. He's gone from insurrectionist leader to... Insurrectionist speaker, Kevin McCarthy. (laughs) Over the course of the four days voting, McCarthy was able to get 15 of the 21 Republican defectors to vote for him, and the remaining six changed their votes to present. 
giving McCarthy 216 of the 428 votes he needed uh, to secure the gavel. Last week on the Roundup, we spent a lot of time discussing the fight, which was still ongoing, and we talked specifically about some of the demands that the defectors made. But now that we're almost a week out from McCarthy's election, we're getting a better sense of some of the concessions he made. Namely, it's going to be easier to oust him or any speaker. Uh, Under the new rules, a single rank-and-file member of either party in the House can force a vote to oust the speaker. If a member does introduce it, the House can vote to delay or refer it to a committee. But uh, if the resolution does make it to the floor, it will only need a simple majority. Uh, In the new rules package, lawmakers will have at least 72 hours to review legislation before it goes to the floor for a vote. They eliminated the Gephardt rule that automatically increased the federal government's borrowing power when appropriations bills are passed, which sets the stage for a fight over the debt limit. You've probably heard uh, rumblings about that. Uh, The Freedom Caucus will be able to select three of the nine Republicans who sit on the House Rules Committee. Uh, And one of the key pieces of the deal was that the Freedom Caucus wanted a weaker Speaker of the House. And last week, we talked about a column that Jonah Goldberg wrote for the Dispatch advocating for a weaker Speaker. And I thought it was very interesting. One of his key points was that legislation would be better if it was hammered out in committees instead of being written by leadership and then presented to members at the last hour. Um, This you could you could flash back easily to 2010 and the the famous controversial quote from Nancy Pelosi about the Affordable Care Act. We have to pass the bill so that you can find out what is in it. Um, and then this week, Sarah Isger, also of the Dispatch, uh, offered up some great analysis. I thought in her newsletter and drilled down on the contempt for the Hastert rule, which is more political norm than parliamentary rule, and it goes something like this. The Speaker of the House will not allow a vote on any legislation that does not have the support of a majority of the majority. Uh, The Washington Post puts it this way. In other words, according to the Hassert rule, even if a bill has the support of 99% of Democrats and 49% of Republicans, which would be 321 of the 435 members in the House, it still wouldn't reach the floor for a vote. Why is this a rule? So the speaker can prevent their members from making tough decisions, taking tough votes that can then be used against them in their re-election campaign. So with that lengthy preamble, uh, I would love to get your takes on the concessions McCarthy made uh, and how you think a weaker speaker could impact Congress. Lene, this is your this is your forte. So I'd love to hear all the things and um, and what you make of these concessions. Yeah, this is my forte. I did have a point last week where someone uh, called me out on a call that wasn't about politics at all to say, Lene, you're not going to be able to say insurrectionist Speaker Kevin McCarthy in every meeting anymore. And I was like, oh, just wait. We're going to get there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I have been vindicated in my prediction about insurrectionist Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Here we are. Um, but one thing about the rules change that um, that is really particular to him is I think what we've seen over the past week and a half and really over his whole career, but it's been highlighted on uh, 24-hour C-SPAN, is all he cares about is power. He doesn't have a ideological core. He doesn't have an agenda. He doesn't have a thing he's trying to make government do or not do. He wants to be in the speaker's office. So this idea that any one member who's mad at him can threaten that power at any moment is very concerning. (laughs) And listen, 
it might not be as concerning if you were talking about a Speaker Nancy Pelosi or even, God forbid, a Speaker John Boehner. There were there were people that had ideas about what they were trying to do that if someone was going to say, hey, I'm going to you know do essentially a vote of confidence, they would say, thanks, I've got the votes, like, do you, but you know I stand for something and so do a lot of my members. He doesn't stand for anything. And so I think that's really worrisome. Um, you know, the, the other two things that really uh, make me worried about this um, – is the defectors don't even agree on what they want. It's not like there was like a a group of people that were like, well, I have this theory about how government should operate. And then this other group of people that was like, well, actually I have a, you know, ideological disagreement with that. And let's like have a really nice debate about it. They all just wanted power for themselves. So I worry, you know, the way that these big bills get done um, is not because every single provision in them is popular on Twitter. And you have to actually um, have a package where people can hide some things that might not be popular on Twitter um, because they're good for the American people. And, you know, I think it kind of flies in the face of the idea that like sunlight is the best disinfectant. Um, But I think sometimes in politics, it's not. Because if we had a ballot initiative on every single thing um, that needs to get done in Congress, like we wouldn't be able to do things that the country deeply needs us to do. And sometimes, you know, governing means making hard choices and things that might be less popular. So um, I worry that now this is holding us um, to the Twitter mob, um, you know, rule. And that is obviously really disconcerting. Um, The other piece is, yes, I love in the abstract the idea that committees are going to like vote on things and deeply debate, you know, what's in this bill. And let's talk about higher education reauthorization and exactly what we should do with the Pell Grant. That's not how it works anymore. Like they're putting Marjorie Taylor Greene back on the education committee. Do you think if we went through regular order to discuss serious issues of education reform that Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to be a constructive addition to that conversation? No, she is going to grandstand and, you know, throw on some some amendment about keeping transgender kids out of sports and then have some debate about what makes a woman and then and then you're like so far afield that you're like, what are we even talking about right now? So I don't think with the current makeup of the Republican caucus in the House that you have serious people um, that are wanting to have a serious debate, at least um, in terms of, you know, some of the policy issues that face the country. So, you know, yeah, we can we can bemoan that and um, think back to a time where it was really great and, you know, McCain and Kennedy got in a room and worked out immigration reform ideas. That's not where we are right now. And that's not the priority of, I'd say, most of the members of the Republican caucus in the House. Um, So sure, in the abstract, great idea. In practice, it's going to make it near impossible for us to do anything. And we need to fund the government. We need to raise the debt ceiling. We need to pay our troops, like real things. And these defector crazy people, the never Kevins, pay no political price for just standing in the way of all of that. And that makes me very worried about what's to come. Yeah, I think all of that is very fair. And and one of these other reforms that we'll get to in a minute, I think will underscore at least one of your points. Um, Mike, I'm really curious about how you read, and I think, Lene, it's really important to underscore, good faith this was not, at least not all around, right? So I think I think we can hold two things at the same time. One is that this was a circus of a, a, a performative, uh, you know, piece of theater uh, for for many of these people. And yet, 
I, I find myself increasingly sympathetic, at least to one of their uh, one of their demands, which was more participation in the legislative process. That really resonated with me. Um, and so, uh, Mike, I'd love to hear how you how you hold both of those things and how you saw this fight play out, and uh, and really what you think about the idea of a weaker speaker. Um, leading to potentially better legislation, more participation, despite the bad faith of the people who were, you know, grandstanding. Well, the Susian aspects of the weaker speaker and the never Kevins is just delightful. <laughs> I don't know how Starbelly Sneeches get into the entire mix. Of course, there was going to be a weaker speaker. He is a weak person. He, because he is just pursuing power and not even power, power is something that you wield uh, for an end. He is pursuing a title. That's the That's how he defines power. He's not wanting the power to do anything other than to tell the world that he achieved his lifetime goal of becoming speaker. And that's fine. I mean, except it's not in terms of what America needs uh, in its agenda. There was never going to be a strong speaker with Kevin McCarthy because he's not a strong person and he never wanted there to be a strong speaker. And his entire modus operandi has been to always negotiate and get along and never hold the line on anything that he defined as important. Has he ever actually ever defined anything as important? So this also sounds like a calumny against his person. But I think the political science analysis is really interesting because the vast majority of those never Kevins, or at least the Gosar, Biggs, Boebert, Gates, I've just named enough to thwart his nomination, right? But those people, they're nihilists. I, I don't know what they want except more TV attention. There are a couple of them. I would say Chip Roy among them, maybe one of the uh, uh, self, um, Will, Mike Self, who is uh, elected from Texas. There are a couple who at least articulate what we want is some way to stop the train of government spending. And they're using their idea of let's consider the bills more. Let's have 72 hours between proposal and vote. Let's do away with this uh, waving of germaneness, which is the rule that in order to propose an amendment, it had to relate to the underlying bill. Uh, but they would always waive that. So you, this is how all these huge omnibus pieces of legislation would pass that included things that weren't even about the title of the bill. And it all sounds good. And I do think that Chip Roy really does want to bring down the national debt, but maybe he alone among the people that were thwarting McCarthy's speakership. Because the the fact is, the truth is that on paper, they could all say what we want to do. We're looking at a system that doesn't work. Right. We're looking at a system where things get stuffed into bills at the last minute that nobody reads. And there seems to be no way to stop this runaway spending. The system doesn't work. But if you really press them and you really ask them, OK, what's your alternative? I think many of them, if they were being truthful, which is hard for some of them, would say, well, we want the system not to work. We just want we say we want less government. And this is a way to achieve that. The last thing I'd say very consequentially on all the things you were talking about, Lene, the things that need to get done, I'm almost solely focused on the debt ceiling. They can't screw that up. We've shut government down and it's not been good. Uh, we've had bad Congresses, do nothing Congresses. We're going to have more of those. We've had ridiculous investigations. Weaponization of government is going to be the new Benghazi. And I don't know what it will provide except fodder for the Fox News Network and those to its right. But we absolutely can't screw around with the debt ceiling. I don't think we will. 
because I don't even think a majority of Republicans want to screw around with the death debt ceiling. But if he made rules that really um, actually does jeopardize that, like seriously brings into question if we're going to fund our debts, that is more than just annoying and dispiriting. That's potentially disastrous. Yeah, totally agree. We've been down that road. We had our credit downgraded and it backfired the last time we did this. So yeah, I I think that's a point well made. The other thing I want to touch on before we leave this topic is uh, one of the real, and this is the point I was going to make, Lene, that I think underscores your yours. One of the real uh, winners here in the in this protracted fight was C-SPAN because they were able to have cameras covering all the action, right, including capturing the moments uh, when Alabama Republican Mike Rogers had to be restrained while he lunged at Matt Gates. On Tuesday, Gates announced that he planned to introduce an amendment to the House rules that would require the Speaker to allow C-SPAN to broadcast the floor proceedings like they did last week. Uh, C-SPAN would be allowed a minimum of four cameras they'd own and operate to broadcast and record floor proceedings. As it currently stands, the cameras are typically fixed on the dais and are controlled by the House Recording Studio, whose footage is used by C-SPAN. So I, um, uh, with with one other tidbit here, I was listening to Ben Sass's uh, exit interview of sorts on a podcast he did, commenting about the extraordinarily high level of bipartisanship that they enjoy within the Senate Intelligence Committee, precisely because of the lack of cameras. And I, and I wonder... Lene, specifically, what you think about, you know, first of all, the way voting was covered last week, but how do you think having more cameras couldn't just incentivize more hyper-performative, you know, politics in the House? You know, I think that this is very similar to the debate around cameras in the Supreme Court, right? People have talked about that a lot. Would it be better um, if we could have um, live access to the arguments? Um, Pre-COVID, we didn't even have audio live access to the the arguments, right? And then um, when COVID came around, they um, made it accessible so that you could listen to um, an audio version. Um, But I always worried that um, as much as I, as a legal nerd, want to know in real time in more detail and SCOTUS blog might give me from refresh, refresh, refreshing what the justices are saying. Um, I was worried that somebody um, like Alito um, or, you know, like at the time Scalia might use it as a moment to, you know, make a public point rather than actually engaging in the substance. I think for Congress that ship has sailed, frankly. Like, I mean, <laughs> I, it's not like I think that Matt Gates is right and or doing this out of goodwill of any way. <laughs> Um, but he already can walk out and there's a thousand cameras right behind the chamber that he can go out and make his point for Twitter. So I don't really know that it would change things that much. There's also, you know, there's a room, um, right off the, the house floor where you can go and, you know, talk in the cloakroom privately. I just think it would, it would matter like, okay, there's no cameras there. They'll, if you're going to have a serious negotiation with someone, like you're going to find a place in the building where there's not a camera pointed at you. There are plenty of those still. So I don't think that this is like, you know, particularly revelatory in any way. Um, but I do think it's part of the, you know, why, why does Matt Gates want it? Because he wants more Twitter moments where he can get almost beat up by someone. And then that's what everyone talks about for the next two days. So, um, you know, but I, I do think, you know, going back to something that Mike said, um, one of the other big takeaways for me on this was just how much of an asymmetry there is between the power that the nihilists have and the power slash courage slash 
balls that the centrists have in the in the caucus, right? And I think part of that is because, um, you know, part of that is because, as I said, the nihilists face no political consequences in their district for being a nihilist. Um, but part of it is because of what you're trying to do, right? Like the centrists actually want government to work. They may want government to work in a slightly different way than I do, but they want it to work and they want to do things and they want to go back to their districts and say, hey, this is the thing I did and that's why you should reelect me. Um, And that is much harder to do um, when you're taking someone hostage. It's much easier to stop things from happening in Congress by taking people hostage than it is to get things done by taking people hostage. And usually we see this asymmetry play out between Democrats and Republicans. And then the Twitter sphere will be like, why aren't Democrats like going harder? And it's like, because it's really hard to get things actually across the finish line. It's much easier to stop things from getting done. Like we have an order of magnitude harder job if you're actually trying to legislate. And so I think, you know, that's the the position we're in. in and I don't know if having more um, cameras on the floor is going to like, you know, raise the ratings of C-SPAN or, you know, give Matt Gates more microphones. But honestly, I think he probably has as many microphones as he wants at the moment. Um, so I'm not sure it would make that much of a difference. Mike, Matt Gates specifically, but really more broadly, I'd love your hot take on the incentive structure really of performative politics, specifically about how this is now the, 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 the this is how, this is how you raise money. This is how you raise all the money. This is how you draw all the attention and uh, and and sort of the, the perversion of the incentives here. Love to know what you thought. What do you think? I'll tell you, if uh, Book TV 2 didn't raise the ratings of C-SPAN, nothing will. That is some scintillating <laughs> programming. Um, it's of a piece. The question you just asked is of a piece with the weak speakership. It's a weakening of the parties. The parties used to hold sway because you had to please the party in order in order to get funding. Now you can become your own independent contractor. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is a fiefdom unto herself, a star who raises so much more money than the party ever could. And on the Democratic side, AOC has more Twitter followers than the, I, I just, I calculated this once, then every single member of the Congressional Black Caucus, plus, you know, a hundred other members of the House. Um, I don't think cameras on, and there are cameras, obviously, uh, in Congress. It's which direction and who decides how to point the cameras. So pointing them to the seats where people hobnob and kibitz, I don't think will change things. Um, Steve Kornacki wrote an interesting book where his thesis was cameras on the floor of Congress, those unmanned robotic C-SPAN cameras, are what created the modern Republican Party in that Newt Gingrich recognized, oh, we could just use this programming in time to air our complaints and become, you know, a new modern party of grievance. It worked. So will the ability to point the cameras in the other direction really change things that much? I think really not that much. As a member of the media, I'm all in favor of actually more transparency and just more information. Um, it depend- I don't think that it's hurt Supreme Court argumentation, although Sarah Isger and uh, David French in their podcast a few weeks ago, you mentioned Sarah before, they were talking about the arguments in the Supreme Court for that, uh, Calif- for that Colorado case about the web designer. And their thesis was if it was, it was all performative, it was all the justices just spinning out these crazy scenarios because they knew that they, they were being recorded. I don't know, maybe in general, I as a citizen like more information rather than less. We benefited from a little more information when we got it on the speaker vote. Most 
of the doings of Congress don't comport with the with what we saw during the speaker vote. There's just not that you guys know. There's just not that much drama inherent in two people <laughs> talking to each other about uh, if they have reservations at which restaurant that weekend. So yeah, I'm generally for it, but. Matt Gates being for it does tell you that everything <laughs> about attention and the attention economy is a large part of what brought us to this place. But you, I think about, too, the the moment when John McCain walked out um, and held his thumb like kind of sideways and you didn't know whether he was going to go up or down on right. repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Like these members know where the cameras are. If they want to create drama, they can do it right now. If they want to not be on camera, they can do it right now. And I don't think there's going to be a huge change there. That was a super dramatic moment. Um, right. And it happened with with our current um, set of cameras because McCain knew how to build up the drama coming out with a sideways fist and nobody knew which way his thumb was going to go. <laughs> It's a, it's a it's a great point and it also shows that just because there are cameras doesn't mean that malefactors will successfully use them. Uh, okay, maybe I shouldn't have applied that term to Senator Cinema, but she was obviously riffing on McCain's thumb when she gave that little curtsy and I think it redounded to a little bit of embarrassment for her that the fact that she played to the cameras in that way. On Monday, the White House acknowledged that last November, President Biden's personal lawyers discovered nearly a dozen classified government documents from the Obama era while they packed up his former office at the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement. Now, CBS News first broke this story. The Justice Department said they were reviewing the matter. CNN reported that Attorney General Merrick Garland has assigned the U.S. Attorney in Chicago, John Lausch Jr., a Trump holdover to investigate the matter. Uh, he has briefed Attorney General Garland multiple times. The documents were discovered days before the midterm elections and were found in a box in a locked closet. Uh, an attorney opened a manila folder labeled personal, saw that there were classified documents in there, closed the folder, and called the National Archives and Records Administration. This is all according to CNN. A source also told CNN that Biden's team turned over several boxes to the National Archives out of an abundance of caution, even though most of the boxes contained personal materials. Tuesday, President Biden said he was surprised to learn that his attorneys found the classified documents and said he does not know what they contain. Uh, CNN reported that they include briefing materials on topics, including Ukraine, Iran, and the United Kingdom from between 2013 and 2016. After the initial discovery of the documents in November, Biden's team searched for any additional classified materials that might have been in other locations and found at least one more batch. Uh, that's according to NBC. Uh, and so before we dive in, I want to make one thing very clear to listeners that uh, there are some obvious and major differences between what we're seeing from Biden and from Donald Trump last summer when classified documents were uh, seized from Mar-a-Lago. One, so far there have been 10 documents from Biden's office compared to at least 325 at Mar-a-Lago. Two, Trump had at least 60 top secret documents. Uh, Three, Biden has been cooperating with the DOJ while Trump is being investigated for obstruction. And four, Biden's attorneys found the documents and alerted the archives while the archives spent a year trying to get documents from Trump's lawyers. So lest anyone uh, accuse us of doing the, you know, uh, uh, both sides thing here, that is not what we're doing. However, this is a major, major story. Um, and we're still not entirely sure what the legal implications of this could be. Uh, but it is worth noting that the primary statutes criminalizing mishandling of classified documents require proof that it was done knowingly or willfully. 
So with all of that, Mike, what was your reaction when this news broke? My reaction was, well, there's the shoe and there's the foot. And now it's on the other one. I do think I have a little bit of rule in politics in 2023, which is that the charge of hypocrisy is almost always accurate and can be applied even to someone alleging the charge of hypocrisy. I don't think that what Biden did from what we know now rises to the level of the criminal exactly because of the last point you make. There was no evidence that he tried to obstruct. In fact, the Trump document scandal is really a Trump obstruction of justice scandal. It's Correct. not a Trump storage yeah. scandal. And that's a very large point. If you, there are two people who receive uh, stolen goods. If Lanai receives some and says, ooh, good sneakers and wears them around town. And if I receive some and say, ooh, this isn't good and turn them in, there's a vast chasm between how law enforcement is going to treat that. The analogy I think of is about Trump being offered uh, information about his opponent that he shouldn't have gotten. And of course, his son said, if this is what it is, if this is what you say it is, I love it. Okay, put that on. Keep that in one part of your brain. And then what happened with Al Gore when he was mailed prep documents for his opponent, they immediately turned it over to the FBI. So apply that to this case. We think, I mean, more could come out about Biden being really incautious or his people being incautious or actually trying to uh, obstruct justice. Also, the classification levels of the documents are really important. But it seems that it's mostly about what you do when confronted with this fact that you broke rules. And do you obstruct or do you comply? And that's really what the story and the difference should be, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Lene, how are you reading this? You know, all I could think about was this moment when I was like 14 and I was in the Paul Bunyan Mall in Bemidji, Minnesota, and they had a Claire's, you know, that like old jewelry yep. store. And I was talking with some friends and I was looking at some earrings and it was one of those stores that like doesn't really have doors. It just like opens to the rest of the mall. And I realized I had walked out of the Claire's with a pair of earrings. And I'm sure that you can understand that baby Lene was as much of a role follower as grown up Lene is, if not more so. <laughs> um, so I was mortified and I ran back to the Claire's with all due speed and was like, I'm really sorry. I just walked 15 feet out of this store. I didn't mean to. Here's the earrings back. And they were like, okay, thanks. They're like $4, whatever. <laughs> but then I felt bad about it for the rest of my life to the point that at 40 years old, I still remember that vignette and like feel upset about it. That's what Biden did here. <laughs> what Trump did yeah. here was like, um, orchestrate a whole bunch of organized crime people to do like massive theft at Claire stores across the country, steal it, take it somewhere, sell it to someone in Russia. I mean, like, it's just like you could not <laughs> construct the, the Claire shoplifting version of what Trump has done. Um, and then when confronted with, hey, did you ask all these people to steal, steal all these earrings and sell them for you? He's like, no, 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 no. Someone else did that. And um, and then the obstruction comes in. I mean, it, there is just no comparison here. Um, but I think that um, the broader point that is is really important for me when I think about how voters think about these things is these kinds of quote unquote scandals or um, scuffles really only matter to voters if they confirm the vulnerability that that person already has in your mind. So I think, for example, 
you know, a lot of times when I hear from voters about their um, worries about Biden, um, it's about his age. It's about like, is he with it enough? Is, it, you know, it's about, is he strong enough? Um, and not, is he like, you know, pilfering documents from the National Archives and hiding them and, you know, putting them in his closet. Um, so I think that this, it isn't the kind of thing I worry about that much politically, because of course, Republicans are going to hold 1,000 hearings about it, which they, of course, you know, we're going to already about Hunter Biden, and this is just another piece. Um, but I don't think it really goes to the heart of like what people are worried about with Biden in a way that will significantly damage him in 2024 beyond the Republican base who like obviously was going to come up with some reason that he's corrupt Biden anyways. Yeah. Okay, this is interesting because my initial thought when I saw this, separate from the legal stuff, which is I think both of you made this point, but to put a finer point on it, this is a distinction between someone who has contempt for the rule of law and someone who is trying to follow the law. And I think obstruction is what this comes down to, uh, even though there, this is an unfolding story and we don't really know. So setting aside the legality, I think politically, this is this is beautiful for Republicans. And and the, the first thing I thought of was with Biden's uh, announcement right around the corner, we think, we are told, uh, that this should be giving his team a little bit of pause, considering that so many Democrats who have spoken mostly off the record, some on the record, uh, who don't think he should run or have said they don't aren't excited about him running again, uh, that this could weaken him enough or at least, you know, is going to be baggage that he will be towing around for a while uh, and, 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 and I, you know, not, not to say this changes their decision, but this, this is not a good day for them. So, um, you think this is not a factor, uh, in terms of how the intra-party politics play out around his, uh, reelect? I think to look at this, these classified documents as anything truly significant, you know, pending more big revelations is just a huge overreaction. A classic example of recency bias. If Biden is, uh, if Biden's going to run again, it's because, well, look at the legislative agenda and look at what we're doing with the five most important issues to Americans. And this isn't anywhere near that. And in fact, Trump's and Trumpism was a big factor to voters, but Trump's document storage wasn't. And as we've said, that was a lot worse. So in I think that maybe the talk about, ooh, this will hurt Biden if he wants to get reelected again, seems to be motivated thinking, or at least let's just say really poor analysis. No one's voting on a classified document that was put on the bottom of a wrong pile. On Sunday, supporters of former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro breached security barriers set up by the armed forces and forced their way into the country's congressional building, Supreme Court, and presidential palace. The breaches come about a week after the inauguration of President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who defeated Bolsonaro in a runoff election on October 30th. Bolsonaro's supporters have been camped out in the capital since then. It's worth noting Bolsonaro left Brazil prior to the inauguration and is currently in Florida. What's really been striking about all this is the parallels, obviously, between what we saw in Brazil this weekend and what we saw here in Washington on January 6th. Uh, Ann Applebaum wrote a terrific piece in The Atlantic uh, this week about what the rioters in Brazil learned from Americans. And one of the key players in both countries has been none other than Steve Bannon. Bannon has implied he had influence over the far right in Spain a claim that Applebaum says the far-right players in Spain laughed at in 2019. He failed to build his far-right university in Italy. We talked about that on the show. 
But Bannon had big wins for the global anti-democracy movement when he helped Donald Trump win the presidency in 2016 and helped Bolsonaro win in Brazil in 2018. So this isn't the first time there's been an attack on Brazil's capital, uh, most notably in 2013. But in the riot last weekend, protesters had signs printed in English saying things like, hashtag Brazilian spring and hashtag Brazil was stolen. Both of the riots were built on the false claims that a presidential election was stolen through faulty voting machines. Uh, Both campaigns launched lawsuits pursuing fictional claims. Applebaum also notes that the chosen date for the protests, January 8th, is odd unless it was an attempt to create a visual echo of the January 6th attack. Uh, And it was after Lula was inaugurated. Uh, Congress isn't in session. The attack won't uh, stop the president from governing. You know, the first time uh, I saw this news break, I I thought, you know, it's spreading, obviously. And we've talked about this on the show quite a lot. Um, But also, I think it's important that we recognize uh, corruption, you know, extraordinarily high levels in Brazil is a, is a, is a Tuesday, right? As opposed to what happened here on January 6th. These things are not the same. They proportionally, these things are not the same. Um, but before we dig in a little bit deeper, how'd you react to the news, uh, as you saw it playing out, Lene? You know, obviously it gave me some January 6th PTSD. Um, there were a lot of similarities just in terms of the visuals and the actual things that the these folks were doing in Brasilia, um, and, and that's really scary. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that there are, um, there are other dynamics obviously going on. Um, you know, even the recently inaugurated president uh, was in jail very recently. And so, uh, you know, there there's not exactly a... Uh, beautiful, shining example of uh, who should be the president in Brazil at the moment. I obviously think that that Lula is, is much better on, on policy. Um, but to your point, there's a lot of underlying corruption dynamics that really both parties have struggled with over time. The things that scared me the most, though, were some other differences that I think made what happened in Brasilia actually worse in some ways than what happened on January 6th, or at least um, gave it the potential to be worse. Um, you know, one is uh, Bolsonaro didn't ask folks to do this. In fact, he said, stand down. And then he went to Florida, which is a whole different question. <laughs> why Why Bolsonaro is in Florida? And the truth is that he traveled here on a head of state visa that is, he's now not the head of state. So he's, he's, essentially illegally in the United States getting medical treatment in Florida. So that's a question. But but he didn't instruct his folks to do this, and they did it anyways. And I think I always had hope that, you know, obviously this didn't come through, but that Donald Trump would say, stop, stop. And if there's no leader, there's no one who can say stop. And that really, you know, obviously he didn't say stop here, so it didn't stop. But but I think that that bodes very poorly long term because these folks are never going to be resolved um, about this movement that they've now created. The second is there's no paper trail on votes in Brazil. I think it's the only country in the world that votes electronically has no paper trail. That's very scary because, you know, the thing that the supporters say is, OK, I can't prove there was fraud. You can't prove there wasn't. Now, as much as we had 
so many fights about whether there was voting fraud in the United States, we had a trail we were able to go back and actually recount. And even when they tried to, you know, give some crazy partisan whack job, the the paper trail, and they tried to make up something else, they couldn't because there were votes and they had to count them in Arizona and then say, oh, I guess, you know, maybe Joe Biden did actually win. Um, so I think that, that that's worrisome because if you do have a lack of faith in the voting system and it is fully electronic and there's no way of going back and finding out, you know, really who people voted for, um, that that doesn't make me feel great. Um, and I think especially if you have a lack in the system, a lack of faith in the system, that would be really worrisome. And then the third is they went out and mass arrested people. And I don't know um, what relationship there is between the people that were arrested and the people that spurred this, you know, protest and riot and insurrection. But, you know, I I was just listening to uh, a story uh, on The Daily about one of the folks that was really um, trying to force people to, you know, march on the Capitol and and was one of the instigators. um, And he just drove away. And so, you know, if you're like, if you don't have faith that the justice system is now going to react appropriately to these folks um, and, you know, prosecute the people who are the instigators, prosecute the leaders, not just someone who happened to be near the Capitol, um, who was either a foot soldier or just kind of around, um, that's also worrisome. And I think as much as it's been frustrating to take two years to um, start to prosecute some of these folks um, from January 6th, I think most Americans... Americans have faith that when Oath Keeper Dude is being tried in court for, you know, insurrection, uh, it's probably because he was an insurrectionist and not just because, you know, a bunch of people got scooped up and he happened to be there. So those things really worry me about what, what this means going forward in places where they don't have faith in the justice system, you know, an alternative party that is actually participating in the rule of law and, and non-corrupt, um, you know, paper trail votes and, and all of those things that were able to save us from the brink here. This is a perfect point to transition to what I want to ask Mike, which is about this, this faith in the justice system. So Anne made this point that the pro-democracy camps in the U.S. and Brazil can, can also set examples for each other, right? Uh, and she talks about the power of example. At the end of December, the January 6th committee has, has recommended that the Justice Department bring charges against Trump for his role uh, in instigating the attack on the Capitol. And we've spent a lot of time on the show, uh, Mike, talking and thinking about how the anti-democracy movements in countries around the globe are feeding off of each other, becoming networked, uh, sharing consultants like Steve Bannon. Um, and so I wonder, first of all, how important do you think it's going to be that Trump is held accountable? And more broadly, uh, how are you thinking about the fact that the United States was the inspiration for an anti-democratic riot in another country? I'm willing to believe that without January 6th, there wouldn't have been a January 8th in Brazil. But with all deference to Anne Applebaum, who's great and really forward looking and her part about strengthening democracy was the best part of that article. I actually do think that there are, are, while there are some obvious parallels, there are more, let's say, perpendiculars or at least angularities to make to make the two uh, situations quite different. And because of those, I don't want to dismiss your concerns, Lene, but um, I'm a little more sanguine than you. First of all, Congress wasn't in session. And that's a giant, there were no cowering, um, rightly cowering officials in their offices as a mob 
uh, tore through calling for their necks. Um, second of all, there were mass arrests at the scene, and that's a good thing. Uh, third of all, there was a, and is accountability with officials. They arrested the former head of Brasilia's police force, Anderson Torres. They arrested the head of the military police in Brazil. It seems like instant accountability is something they're driving for. And it seems we also have to realize the context of the two countries are really different. Brazil had a military dictatorship from 65 to 84, and there's just so many more protests. It's just such a bigger facet of life. There were the vinegar protests over a few things like uh, uh, fares, the public transportation fares a few years ago. There are often protests in the streets. It's not so, while it's concerning the form that these rioters took by breaking into the Capitol, and that probably was inspired by January 6th, in in it's really stupid. Stupid way. There was no, as much as there was no plan on January 6th, the plan was to get Mike Pence to decertify the election. And then what? There was really no plan by breaking into an empty presidential palace and judicial uh, offices. And then I saw a video of a guy attempting to defecate and being unsuccessful. Or, or at least I'm glad they cut away before the video ended. But it does seem to me that this was a spasm where you do have accountability afterwards. You have a different political context. You had no chance of this really succeeding in any successful way, I think, even as compared to January 6th. You're going to have accountability afterwards. I defer to your point about no paper ballots, but I talked to Brian Winters, really clear-eyed analyst of Brazil. He was on the gist, and he points out that Brazil has a central authority, a federal authority about elections. The United States uniquely, and I think really vulnerably, does not have that. And this authority, the chief judge who talks about election rules and rules on election rules, is followed. He has credibility. And that takes away a lot of the vulnerabilities that America has with its system. Will holding Trump accountable further buttress the American system? I think it will. Of course it will. But I think that there are other structural fixes that don't rely on, you know, the wisdom or judgment or uh, Merrick Garland's interpretation of the law. The Congress, maybe not this one, but the Congress could improve American electoral laws to strengthen it and to, to, to strengthen our democracy and to take it seriously. Yeah, I think if they get him on anything, it's going to be Mar-a-Lago documents. Right. I think that's what it's going to come down to. Yeah, I think that. If they do, I don't know what his time in jail will be, though. Do you think he has he has yeah, criminal right. culpability in that matter? I think it's more likely that uh, we get something out of New York State or, or Georgia where, you know, he very clearly committed crimes and uh, those prosecutors are um, less worried about the political implications for the Biden administration. Well, if this is a game of odds, at least we got multiple right. chances. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now that we're up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's turn to what you're watching uh, above the radar, below the radar, wherever it falls. Uh, Mike, what do you got for us? I just have a question. If, in fact, Bolsonaro is in Florida illegally, is Ron DeSantis going to deport him to Martha's Vineyard? Is that plan <laughs> in the works? It's. I think it's a live question, and we have to monitor. No, it. if he was in Texas, Ron DeSantis <laughs> would deport him to Martha's Vineyard. He doesn't actually deport people from Florida. <laughs> right, right. He has to. They have to be the layover first. From his exactly. own state. That's right. The, the Texas layover. two step. Yeah. 
<laughs> Love it. Lene, what do you got? Well, I thought there was a really interesting piece in the New York Times this week about something that we've been thinking a lot about that I think hasn't gotten enough attention, which is the Asian vote and its relationship to Democrats. So there's been a lot of discussion, um, obviously, for the last couple of cycles about um, the Latino vote, as well there should be. It's large. It's swingy. It's important. Um, talk to Mike Madrid about all of that. Um, but um, And there's been some um, you know, really deep thinking about the Black vote in in particular black men, younger black men, and the erosion of their support for the Democratic Party. Um, but less has been focused on the Asian vote, which obviously is um, a misnomer by itself because there is not one Asian vote, just as there is not one black vote or one Latino vote. But um, there are- There's barely one Asian. That's right. There are major <laughs> populations of, um, of Asian voters in really important states politically and really important districts politically. Um, and this piece was about um, how Asian voters um, particularly in New York, but elsewhere as well, um, really um, have come to fall away from the Democratic Party. You know, there are things that um, a lot of Asian voters like about the Democratic Party. There are things they don't like about the Republican Party, um, in particular, you know, racism and things like that. But um, on crime in particular, they're very, very, very sensitive. And um, there were a bunch of really interesting interviews with um, Asian voters who went for Lee Zeldin because because um, in the governor's race in New York, they didn't think that Kathy Hochul was up to the challenge of reducing crime in their neighborhoods. Um, so that's super interesting. Take a look at that. But what the really piece that was kind of bubbling underneath of that entire story um, was about affirmative action in education. And every single voter they talked to said, yes, I'm worried about crime. But then they'd say, and also they're changing the admissions policies for these elite schools. And, you know, I want my kid to be able to go to this school. And now they're discriminating against this person. Right. And not just colleges. Less listeners think you're only talking about colleges, elite high schools. Very That's important. right. They're talking about elite high schools. And, you know, I've said for a long time that part of the reason that Glenn Youngkin was able to win in Virginia wasn't about CRT necessarily. I don't think swing voters are that concerned about that. Maybe that helped him get out of space in rural areas. But there were a lot of voters Asian white voters, you know, of every race in Northern Virginia who are very worried um, about efforts to uh, say, well, we can't have um, these, you know, high achieving high schools um, or or elite programs for high schools um, because there's no way to equ equitably do an admissions policy. So we're just going to eliminate these, you know, these programs in these schools and just make them like any other school. That is not popular. It's not popular with voters generally, and it's certainly not popular with Asian voters. Um, and I really worry um, that this dynamic, which is real and is already there, um, is going to be exacerbated by the Supreme Court decision this spring around affirmative action in higher ed. I don't know how Democrats are going to react to that decision, but it is almost certain that the Supreme Court will strike down any ability to use race even as one factor of many in higher education admission. And it is a bombshell within the Democratic coalition. The Biden coalition of 2020 is not united around that topic. And I really worry that it's going to be something we're going to have a serious fight about um, this year and going into next year. Um, and, you know, like Mike said, it's not just about colleges. It's about admissions policies generally, testing policies generally, um, equity and, and gifted programs and and gifted and talented programs, eliminating gifted and talented programs 
cannot be the answer, right? There are equity problems, but just saying no one can have this thing because we can't figure out how to do it cannot be the answer, either policy-wise or politically. And it seems to be the only thing that some folks within the Democratic Party are offering right now. Um, so it worries me. It's coming around the corner. And I just think you should you should watch. There's concerns about crime, but it goes way deeper than that. This is such a great, great look ahead. I, and I, I listened at length to some analysis about, uh, mm-hmm. it was it was uh, Sarah and David at Advisory Opinions talk about the two Supreme Court cases, one out of North Carolina and the other from Harvard, about the the, the, the very deep questions uh, embedded in, the, uh, in, in both of those cases uh, that will be coming out this term, right, June? We will know the answer to these. So yeah, really, yeah, this is fantastic. All right, gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, we're going to talk about Biden's move to the center, question mark. Uh, Where can everybody find you on the internet, Mike? Well, I have a Twitter account at Pesca M-I, Pesca Me, but the show is The Gist, and just put it in wherever you listen to uh, podcasts. Uh, And not even mad, we're we're cranking that thing up again on the idea that we get a conservative and a liberal and me talking together and not biting each other's heads off. Not even mad, I got to say, is terrific. And you guys do this great segment called Cancel Court where you, uh, do you want, you want to tell people what you do on Cancel Court? I love this segment. Well, the three, the three hosts of the show are justices and people come before the court who are said to have been canceled. And then we rule, were they in fact canceled? And if so, was it a fair cancellation? And all judgments are fine, unless they're not. <laughs> it's, unless they're not, it's terrific. Lene, where can everybody find you on the internet? I am still on Twitter at Lene Erickson, um, but now that Elon Musk has messed with my Twitter feed where he's like picking what I see instead of I'm picking who I want to follow, when I it's apparently some kind of TikTok thing that they've moved over to Twitter that I hate. I don't know how much longer I'll be there. <laughs> so if you want to look at uh, the research that I frequently mention, it's thirdway.org. I'm in the same boat with you and Twitter. I just, I, I, I don't even want to, I don't want to do anything about it. I just have stopped touching it for now. So maybe Mastodon in the future. I just think it's funny that Elon Musk thinks he knows better what I want to see than I do because isn't his whole thing like free speech and choice? I'm like, I followed people for a reason. Like now you're overriding my own choice. It just seems very backwards. As Mike mentioned much long ago in the show about He's hypocrisy. Twitter into a driverless car. Oh, Twitter as a driverless car. That was good. <laughs> ah, that is good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.